Hello and welcome to episode 74 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 11 years experience in Brazil and China. On the podcast, it seems like we sometimes circle many of the same topics. Half a dozen guests, it seemed like, told stories about reporting on the Uyghur ethnic minority in China. And more recently, three or four guests have all wanted to talk about North Africa and the Sahel. Believe me, I don't plan this. It just kind of naturally happens. But somehow we have not talked much about what has been one of the biggest international stories for more than a decade, the civil war in Syria. I suspect that is a bit to do with how dangerous it has been to report on it, that even if some of the past guests have written about it, I don't think any ever actually crossed into Syria to report on it. We skirted it a bit in our episodes with Evan Hill, Jane Arif, and Guga Chakra, but here we finally talk about it extensively. I spoke to Lena Sinjab, a BBC correspondent based in Beirut. Lena is from Damascus, so she didn't go seeking out war, but it found her. When she started out, she wrote more about culture for local publications, but soon she was pulled into covering conflict with the Lebanon War between Israel and Hezbollah. Then when the Arab Spring happened and helped to spur the initial insurrection in Syria in 2011, conflict reporting became all-consuming. I won't lie, and Lena will admit, this is perhaps not the most uplifting episode. There is no happy ending in all of this. I'd like to thank Lena for talking about it and being open about her personal struggles with some of the terrible things that she has lived through and seen. She now lives in Beirut and continues to cover the story from abroad, producing some impressive film and radio documentaries, as well as written stories, often working with people still in the country. Syria is one of the most important stories in the world, and let's not forget the conflict there is still going on. Lena says it's worse for Syrians living there than ever before. So I'm glad we were able to talk about it, regardless of how gloomy it can be. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Lena Sinjab, a BBC correspondent based in Beirut, Lebanon. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Lena. Thank you for having me. And to warm up a little bit, if you could start by describing the physical space around you and where you are geographically recording this, and also tell us a little bit about what uh, the past week of work has been like for you. I am based in Beirut at the moment. I've been living here for the past seven years. I left Syria in 2013, heading to London with my work with the BBC, thinking that I'll be in London for a few months. And then I decided to come to Beirut thinking I'll stay for a year and then head back to my hometown in Damascus. But here I am for the past seven years. I live in my little apartment by the seaside in Beirut. And as much as it is safe here for me, it's been a terrible week in the region covering the disastrous aftermath of the earthquake. Although I haven't been there myself, but I've been reporting on it from here. And we felt it strongly here in Lebanon. Even the, you know, two days ago, we had a very strong one that moved and shook my building. So it's quite an experience in this part of the world where, unfortunately, as a journalist, you know, the story that comes on air is the bad, miserable story. And last week was one of the worst to cover in the past you know, decade or more. Yeah, yeah, the death toll is crazy. Um, how, what sort of stories have you been doing um, from Beirut about it? You know, the first day of the earthquake, you know, since I, we felt that 
here strongly in Beirut. By the time my colleagues arrived in Turkey to cover it, so I've been, you know, following up and doing all the lives, the radios, the talks, the updates on the story until my colleagues hit the ground and started like to file the real stories from the ground. But I continued to cover northwest Syria because no journalist was able to get in and I was able to see the news and see the updates. Even in government-controlled Syria, it was hard to get because the regime doesn't allow international journalists unless the ones approved by the regime to come in. So it was a miserable story to recover remotely, but this is nothing new to covering Syria, unfortunately, because it's a hard country to cover with the dictatorship and with the dangers of being in some armed opposition areas that were mainly Islamists covered. So we have learned to develop ways of covering the story from abroad, relying on local journalists, on citizen journalists, or actually on just activists and medics who provide updates on the story. And thanks to social media, everything is there. You just need to verify that it is the right piece of information or the right video that you are using to report the story. Yeah, and uh, hopefully we'll talk about some of those difficulties covering Syria later in the interview. A big point of the podcast is to let other journalists know how you got to where you are today. So for that, I'd like to go way back to if you could talk a little bit about where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything, planted the seed of interest in journalism or documentaries or whatever you do today early on in your childhood. So for me, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a Dabasin by blood. You know, I lived all I've there, I grew up there, went to school, you know, university. And, you know, I, I don't come from a family that has anything to do with art or education or even politics. They're just in business. So that was like nothing to have in the family. But I always had my eyes outside feeling that there is something else I wanted to do different. And, you know, I've always been interested in art and writing. And that's what drew me to journalism. I wanted to tell people stories, to write about people. And I started by reporting on you know, the art scene in Syria in some of the Arab or local newspapers. And then I moved to join uh, the BBC as a, as a producer. But also I was reporting to other media outlets and international media outlets until by the years and by the experience their their correspondent in Syria. And Syria is, the, is a country that is very difficult, have always been very difficult when it comes to freedom of expression. So you had to be careful in drawing your way around in how to tell the story, which story to tell. Obviously, it was hard to report on political stuff because of the censorship and the risk from security. So that's why I focused on the economic issues, on the social issues, that somehow you can reflect on the political situation without actually mentioning, naming names or pointing fingers to the leaders that would put you in trouble. Growing up in Damascus... Were you starting as a college student? Was it after college? Was there an opportunity to study journalism? Or how did these first steps happen? 
At university, I studied English literature, and at the same time, I was like doing distance education here in Lebanon. I was also studying law, thinking that I want to become a lawyer at some point, but then I stopped. So I finished my English education, and I did a master in translation. But then, you know, actually, during that time, I was also writing for magazines about the art scene in Syria, in Damascus. Damascus used to be like host international theater festival, international film festival, where, you know, artists from the Arab world came and showed great performances. So I used to follow that and write about it for several magazines. But then I moved to work with international organizations like the BBC. And, and even before that, I worked as a reporter for Dubai Satellite Channel and some regional you know, channels. So that was the start of my work for TV. Uh, but then it was like a great big move uh, when I joined the BBC because you learn it by doing it. And it's a great school of uh, developing professional journalism career, basically. Sure. And those first steps into international media, how did that happen exactly? Did they get in touch with you? Did you get in touch with them? Were you constantly pitching stories or something? It was amazing because I think it was in 2004 when a team from BBC Radio wanted to do a program in Syria, a radio program on Mother France, uh, Father America, which is like basically the relationship between some Middle Eastern countries with Europe, the stick and carrot policies between Europe and America. And they came to Syria and it was like the great colleague, Alan Little, who was one of the best correspondents and reporters for the BBC, whose career goes back, you know, decades. So by recommendation from other colleagues, they suggested my name to them to produce the program for them in Damascus. And that's what I did. So we went around, we like interviewed the people that have suggested and we did all this. And after they left, so basically he went back to the BBC and he said, if you ever want to work in Syria, this is the woman that you should work with. And just after that program, I started producing different programs and with different teams coming to, to Syria. And within um, a couple of years, there was Unfortunately, the war on Lebanon in the summer of 2006 that I was involved in helping people reporting inside Syria, producing the story on the Syria side of the war, but also liaising because it was all the crossing point to get into Lebanon. And right after that story, I've got my first contract with the BBC as the Damascus-based producer. And the next year, I was also doing my own reporting from Damascus until I moved to be fully-fledged their correspondent in Syria. So uh, a couple questions about that. I mean, was it a difficult transition from being a writer to working in audio and video? Or how did you find that? It was an enjoyable learning experience to see how to work for radio, how to work differently for television. You know, this was like a really learning experience for me, how to differentiate between collecting audio or building a story visually using the visuals around you and imagining how it works for television. Learning how to write for radio different than writing. Uh, TV, different than writing for an article. So these are multi-platform things at the BBC that are great learning in anyone's career, basically building the storytelling in different medium. Right. And I mean, particularly when it comes to war and conflict, I mean, 
being a writer and being in visual media it makes a huge difference because if you need video, you need to be a lot closer. You can do a lot of reporting, you know, as a writer over the phone and you don't have to show it. But I mean, how did that play out, for example, in, in your first experience with this, the 2006 uh, Lebanon war? I mean, did you have to get near the border? Was it mostly interviewing people fleeing across the border? Or how exactly did that reporting work? Well, basically, I think any journalist needs to be on the ground because whether you're doing radio, television or writing a piece, you need to see things for yourself so that you know how to express them. You need to meet people face to face to know how to tell their stories. Of course, you know, the latest Syria war pushed us because of the security risks and the government's control to make everything from a distance. But you still need to talk to people to understand their situation and report it correctly. But of course, it's impossible to do that with video. Although also, again, you know, with video, we've relied a lot on visuals provided by citizen journalists in the past 10 years or more. But, you know, I think it's definitely more difficult for television because your camera needs to be there, needs to capture the moment at the right minute, at the right uh, second. And that's what we did in, um, you know, the 2006 war, although most of the teams were inside Lebanon, but many were also in Syria because people. People fled to Syria and we've seen lots of Lebanese families who cramped in schools or in houses inside Syria. But I remember one story that we did with one of the correspondent at the time. It was in Homs at the northern border with Lebanon. And then there was a bomb that hit closer to the border and there were many bodies that arrived through the border. And I remember being very harsh on the correspondent at the time because I wanted him to do his piece to camera right as the coffins were moving behind him. And he it was a brilliant collaboration between, you know, the cameraman, me, and the correspondent just like to capture the moments on camera. So, of course, the television work is much more stressful because, you know, it's a teamwork and you need like all the team to be in line and on alert to capture the moment to be able to tell it visually because without the photo, without the strong video, you have no story. And uh, the other transition I was interested to ask about is you said, you know, you started out doing more stories about culture and the arts and, you know, within a few years you find yourself reporting on war. I mean, did that square with why you wanted to get into journalism? Was it a difficult transition from these kind of more upbeat topics and, you know, war, which is about as grim as it gets. Was that a tough transition? Personally, I wanted to, I was interested in telling people's stories to report on the realities. And, you know, as much as I'm still interested in arts and culture, and I still think that, you know, this is a great way of explaining the behind the scene of the society and even the politics to reflect on how art and culture are operating in the, especially in this part of the world because probably this is the medium that has the most freedom in expression because they don't say things directly so it's very interesting to report on that but i think unfortunately in our part of the world the realities push you in different ways because If today I call up the editor and say, well, I have a play I want to report about while the earthquake is happening, 
definitely the interest is in the earthquake. Unfortunately, it's a bad story, but you have to tell it, you have to report on it. And that's what happened in 2006. And after that, I went back to reporting on economic things, on cultural things, and on refugees things. You have also in Syria, the Iraqi refugees who lived there for a long time. So that was also a story of interest for international media. But even covering the Iraqi story, you would cover, you know, art and culture, you know, we'd cover Iraqi artists who moved to Syria. There were universities full of Iraqi professors and doctors who were teaching there. So there are different ways of telling the political story, of telling the war story. It doesn't have to be only about death and bombing or fleeing. You know, you also need to highlight how people are integrating in their society. And same applies to Years later, I've reported on my own people, on Syrian people fleeing a war, being bombed, living in refugee camps or living, you know, in diaspora around the world, getting integrated into their new homes, their new countries, basically. And so you get contracted to work for BBC full time. And how does it work from there going forward, I guess, until the war breaks out in Syria what sort of, you say you're doing mostly economy, is it mostly, are you doing long-form documentaries, are you writing short pieces, what what, what exactly was the work you were doing then, if you have any highlights uh, from that period? I think the great thing about working with the BBC is that you get to do everything with them, you know, you get to do the radio pieces, you get to do the radio documentary, you get to do the TV documentary, or you get to do the, the news pieces, or the, the feature pieces, and really, you develop your skills from there. So, you know, I've reported on the lack of freedom of expression in Syria, about women's rights in Syria. I've reported about art and culture, but I also reported on economy. And I remember one story I did. I did a radio documentary for the BBC about the economic situation in 2010. At the time, the BBC wanted me to do it also for television, and I did say it's not going to work because it's a very sensitive story at the time, imagine, 2010. And I told them there are things that I can get to record and describe on my radio mic that I would never be able to get the permission to film on camera. To explain the context a little bit for your audience is that, you know, in Syria, anything you wanted to do, you need to have a permission. Because I was an accredited journalist, I was able to go out and do radio pieces. But if I wanted to go and film, I needed to have a piece of paper for every day I was filming outside. And at some point, somebody from the Ministry of Information had to be with me during the filming. So we had to be very careful in what we write on paper, what we ask for permission to do. And also very careful in what we report. Of course, we never did anything that compromises the journalism that we do. But of course, that meant that many stories, personally, as a Syrian, I wasn't able to report on, such as like political prisoners or notorious prisons at the time. That has broken after 2011. And I want to go back to this radio documentary I did about the economy in 2011, 2010, because I was very worried at the time that it was going to be on air. And it was on air in February 2011. 
In that documentary, I've interviewed one of the dissident opposition figure who was an Alawite professor of economics who spent five years in prison simply because he criticized the economic monopoly over the cellular phones by the president's relative, Brami Makhlouf, at the time. And I was so worried that I'm going to get in trouble because of that. But by the time that documentary was aired, the uprising began and... I wrote a piece at the time, I think it was in March 2011, it was titled Silence Broken in Syria, where the red lines have moved, the the ceiling of the red line have moved so much up that that documentary, not a threat for me at all, in comparison to what people were saying on the ground. Right. Yeah, I can imagine that, you know, a relative's monopoly isn't that pressing of an issue compared to a rebel uprising. Getting back to before the the war starts, I mean, what kind of pressure could they, would they put on journalists at the time? I mean, is it the type of thing where you would face jail time or things like that if you were Syrian and if you were a foreigner, was it easier to, to report on it? Definitely there was a big difference between what the Syrian can report on and what a foreigner can report on. Don't forget that foreigners can come in do their reporting and get out and write whatever they want. You know, the worst thing that would happen to them is that they will never get a visa again to come back to Syria. But the things that they would say, we would never be able to say. Uh, I'll give you an example of one journalist who at the time was the correspondent for Al-Hayat newspaper, an Arab newspaper. He was very, very connected to the regime, would have great access. And because of a story in 2003 that he wrote about information leaked for him from one security apparatus, saying that Syria is getting ready to receive refugees and building up camps at the border. That line put him in jail for six months. Wow. Because they didn't want that information to go out. It meant that they were approving the war at a time where their political statement was that they were against the war. So that's the price that this journalist paid. I'll give you an example of myself. You know, in 2010, we did a radio documentary about music in Syria. But that radio documentary was mainly about Iraqi refugees in music, where there was a famous Iraqi musician called Ilham Madfai. And there was also another, you know, old player, Iraqi young old player. I can't remember his name at the at the time. So because of this combination of Iraqis, and also don't, I want to also explain something to the audience that unfortunately Syria is the country that they say every Syrian has a security informant. And sometimes simply because somebody doesn't like you, they can write a report to the security about you, and that is enough to get you in trouble. So the report that came again at the time that I was doing a documentary about the Kurds in Syria. And of course, reporting on the Kurds was also a taboo in Syria because there was a big issue about their rights, the census of the Kurds. You know, the Kurds didn't enjoy any rights in Syria. They didn't have an ID. They don't go to schools. They can't speak their language. So there were many turmoils around the Kurdish area. And at that time, because of this issue that was completely false, you know, and I had to bring proofs of the program that it was only about music, nothing about the Kurds. But I was denied working, you know, suspended from working for three months. Wow. And that's, they can just enforce that. They can just tell the BBC or, or 
not grant permission for you to do anything for three months. Exactly. And the worst ha- happened after that. I think that was 2009 or something. But in 2010, I was also doing series of stories. And for that, I interviewed the first lady, Asma al-Assad. I did a radio interview with her. And, you know, we've agreed that we'll record five minutes and we'll broadcast five minutes. And that's what we did. She was organizing an international conference for NGOs at the time uh, because, you know, she established what is called the Syria Trust for Development. And she wanted to have more international NGOs operating in Syria. At the time, there was an NGO working to protect women's rights in Syria. That was, you know, the the women working there, the activist women were criticized and threatened by religious authorities. So what I did, I wrote an article about that interview and about that conference. And to balance it out, I didn't even raise the issue of human rights or political prisoners or anything. I just spoke to these women who were threatened and couldn't operate and their NGO was suspended because basically their NGO was not an affiliate to the First Lady's Trust. And that's the line that I put, that they basically hailed that she is promoting and supporting international NGOs, but they basically said, we hope that NGOs can work independently and can operate independently on all levels in Syria. After that article was published, I was summoned into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I do remember very well how I was scolded by the officer there and how I was threatened. And the line she used, basically, how dare you criticize her work? How dare you think that you can do anything if we don't allow you to do it? And she said, with a move of my pen, I'll make you disappear. And after that story, again, I was suspended from working for like six months. So imagine, imagine the level of threat and the difficulty to operate in Assad, Syria before the uprising. And the story, you know, although the level of freedom of expression has changed after the uprising, but the risk has not moved completely. And I'll tell you what happened later. Yeah, wow. That's uh, intense being under threat of disappearance. And I I mean, I imagine I've never reported from Syria, but I've reported from China and I know like people do get disappeared and it's unclear whatever happens to them. I know some Chinese journalists, assistants to Bloomberg and, and others that that's happened to. Let me see. I guess let's start talking about the uprising and the war since, you know, that probably is a huge part of your career Let's first talk about when when it first happened and how you covered it and and did you see it coming and just tell us how how the start of the war was for you and how the lead up to it was. So you know uh, at the time I think before anything happened in Syria it all started in Tunisia in Egypt you know in Libya and and in Yemen and I remember very well the first time I went to Libya undercover to report from there before the famous uh, uh, statement or you know speech by Muammar Gaddafi at the time where we call it the speech of Zanga Zanga Dar Dar where he basically said that we're going to get after all these radicals as the, he described them in every street and in every you know neighborhood 
I was actually in Libya, in Tripoli, when he made that speech. I had arrived. I fooled the, the officer saying, well, I'm coming for tourism in Libya. And I actually, I arrived in Libya when the airport was packed full of people leaving, trying to run away from Libya. I went there and I stayed in a hotel and I couldn't leave my hotel. I remember I was the only one in the hotel with security. And I stayed in my room. I was like reaching out to activists and describing what I hear and see from my balcony until the moment that you know shooting started in the street below me and some of the bullets came across to my room basically so I had to hide behind the bed you know and then I think the next day where the speech started of like this threat for my mom al-Qazafi and BBC decided it's not safe anymore for me to stay there and I had to leave and I think I took the last plane to leave Libya before before the airport was closed. And then I moved to report on Yemen at the time. And Yemen was an incredible experience because unlike Syria, there is freedom of expression in Yemen. You would go to the opposition and talk to them and then move to the other side and talk to pro-Ali Abdullah Saleh to talk to them. But coming to Syria, I remember first there were announcements on the 5th of February that something's going to happen in Syria. And I flew back from Yemen directly to be there on the day. And of course, nothing happened on that day. And we suspected anything would happen in Syria, you know. And I think I've reported... A revolution in Syria is far from reality. It's not going to happen. Syria is not Syria is not Egypt or Yemen or Tunisia. And I think that was what Bashar also announced at the time. That situation is different. Um, little did we know that you know things are going to move quickly because of the children who were tortured in Dera because they were inspired by what's happening in the region. But at the time when actually the first probe broke out in Syria, I was in Washington going for it, you know, um, you know, residency. But I, I had just arrived there. I think I arrived on the 15 or 16 of March and then took a flight back and started reporting on what's happening inside Syria. And I wasn't able to believe that actually the street had moved and people are taking to the streets and speaking out loud, calling for change of government, calling for justice, calling for their children to be released from prison. For me, this was unprecedented. And I think I've shared it with many Syrians that this was the first time ever we feel that we have this strong sense of belonging to the country, that when you feel that you have a say in what's happening around you, that you have the gut to speak out of what's happening your sense of belonging completely changes. And that's exactly how I felt at the time. So at the start, I mean, you sound like it started and you were almost optimistic about how things might go. I guess, how, how do things go from there? And you, you mentioned that you leave the country in 2013, I believe. So, so what, what happens in those first couple of years of the war? Well, even for me, the threat started from the first days. So um, I think it was probably the first two weeks. I was in Douma. I went to Douma to report on the protest. Douma is a neighborhood in Damascus, a suburb of Damascus, that was like almost 10 minutes drive from my home, where also protests began there because city after city, street after street, neighborhood after neighborhood were, you know, against shooting or killing or, you know, bombing or using any of that. 
at the time there wasn't bombing, there was shooting and arrest and beating up people. The minute I arrived there, I saw by my own eyes what we call the thugs or shabiha, you know, sort of men with muscles going around, the protesters like catching them, beating them up. And I saw them running after, you know, some protesters. And then they saw me and they've taken me to the security and the security put me in in the the security car and drove me to one of the detention centers and there i saw incredible horrific um scenes where i saw tens of men lining up against the wall with their hands up their heads you know facing the wall but looking down and I am sorry to bring this up to the audience, but this is the reality of what I've seen. You know, I've seen, you know, fresh blood on the floor everywhere because of the torture. Of course, because I'm a female and I'm a journalist, I wasn't beaten up, but I was threatened. And then I spent the whole night until the early hours of the morning in an investigation room. And I was like threatened that if I open my mouth and say anything of what I've seen, they'll just basically cut my tongue. And because at the time I was an accredited journalist for the BBC, they couldn't lock me in. So they released me the next morning. But you can see and expect what kind of situation and what kind of story you're going to report on for the years to come. And I continued reporting, going to places, but then they were not happy with what I have been saying on air because... I was reporting the reality of what's happening. So I was prevented from going anywhere. I was denied access. I wasn't given any permission to move around. So I ended up reporting from behind my computer at home. But later on, in some occasions when the UN were available in Syria, we were able to go on tours with the UN. And I've seen terrible stories. I've seen, you know, I went to areas where there were massacres. I went to areas where I've seen fresh blood and some women in distress, probably after being raped. So uh, it was like really a terrible situation. And one day I was about to travel to Lebanon and I was also arrested at the border. And I think I, I spent like a day before I was able to be released and I was even arrested before that I was even just jogging one morning next to my house and a car with security people they came and they picked me up and put me in the car and I also with without contact for like 24 hours before the BBC managed to locate me and put some pressure to release me but the last time, you know, when I was arrested at the border, I was under a travel ban for almost a year and I couldn't leave the country. And then I was able to do a little bit of reporting here and there, as as I said, when the UN were there and I managed to go to Homs, to go to Latakia and report a little bit from Damascus before we decided and the BBC helped to get me out of the country because it wasn't safe anymore. And they felt that... Probably the next time I would be arrested for a report or for anything I report on, they won't be able to help me. And for my own safety, uh, they got me out of the country in 2013 and I moved to London to continue reporting on the story from there. Wow, that's a lot. And um, 
did you consider, I mean, giving up before that? I mean, uh, cutting your tongue out, disappearing you, these are all pretty heavy threats. I mean, how, how did you know when it had gotten to be too much or, or it was just you had to kind of do guesswork and it felt like it was getting too dangerous? To be honest, um, I never wanted to stop because I felt that the what's happening to people is far worse than what's happening to me. And I was delusional. And I think the BBC made the right decision at the time to get me out because I would have continued. And probably I would have faced similar destiny like many, many local journalists who disappeared or got killed or are in prison. And even when I left, you know, I remember going around in the BBC in London and, you know, everyone is saying, you know, grad, you're out and hope you enjoy your stay in London. And I was say that, no, 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 I'm here only for a couple of weeks just to get, take a break, not realizing that this was my last, you know, move out of Syria and not accepting the fact that I've left my home country. And after I left that, I've started feeling the heaviness of what I've been through. And I've learned what PTSD means, what panic attack means, what, you know, anxiety means, things that have been feeling inside Syria, but never understanding what is this. So only when I left that I've learned all this. And I I was so resistant to the idea that I've left home. You know, I always wanted to go back, but, you know, I knew that if I go back, I would be arrested. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy to reconcile with the idea. Probably that's why also I've made the decision to give up my full-time job with the BBC and come to Lebanon, a part-time job with them as a freelancer because I wanted to be close to home and Lebanon, Beirut was the closest to home. And I truly remember in 2016 thinking that it's only a year I will spend in Lebanon and then I'll go back to, to Damascus. And here I am almost, uh, you know, seven years since I moved to Beirut, 10 years almost since I left Syria. I left Syria in April 2013. And I am not home. I remember one day I was reporting on Palestinians in Syria. And I interviewed one person who showed me the keys to his house. And that was 50 years after he left his house in Nablus. And... I never thought that I would ever face the same destiny. Yeah, well, and I mean, what uh, what's the situation for your family back in Syria? We all left. So my mom and dad left after I left. My brothers and sisters too. You know, our losses in the family doesn't compare at all to the people who were under bombing and lost members of their family or even today, you know, the the trauma continued with the earthquake. So whoever survived the bombing is dead because of the earthquake. So there's nothing to compare with that. But we also went through our own family losses. You know, my father died in 2013, shortly after he left Lebanon. And, you know, um, we're not home, you know, uh, and no matter how much you get used to this place, but it's never home. Yeah, that's difficult. And then, yeah, I wanted to ask in those first couple of years when you were still in Syria, I mean, was it possible to 
talk to the rebels or what, because the government was keeping such a close eye on you that it wasn't possible because you knew you'd be retaliated against for doing that? That's what I mentioned when when the UN started operating in Syria, they've allowed some international journalists to come in. So some colleagues from the BBC started to come in and that's when I was able to move around with them. And yes, we did go to rebel controlled area. We've been to Duma many times or, you know, in different ways. Sometimes they pick us up from Damascus. I was always able to liaise with the rebels using safe lines to communicate with them. Some areas within Damascus, I did. I was able to go on my own and do stuff for online without a camera or without, you know, radio kits. So that was easier to do on my own without a team being around. Uh, so I was doing more for online because it was easier without a camera. We, we don't need the permission for the camera. So, yeah, I've been to many places, but the hardest to report on were actually government-controlled area. I remember going to Latakia to one of the villages of Assad loyalists who've lost some of their sons on the front line. They were quite aggressive with the BBC, you know, calling us, you know, just like biased and not reporting the truth. I also remember, I, I just remember the first week of the uprising, uh, we were all called in as journalists for a press conference that was going to be aired live on state television. And that was picked up by many international media, too. And that was a week after Dera, the protest in Dera started. And I had been to Dera. And on my way out of Dera, I've seen a convoy of military vehicles and military officers and soldiers heading to Dera. So I raised my hand. It was Buthayna Shaban, uh, the media advisor at the time basically denying uh, any uh, problems and saying that the president is there to help people and that there would be you know promotions and salaries whatever all these like kind of propaganda messages that they give so i stood up and i asked raise my hand and asked my que- question and i told her i was in that yesterday and this is what i saw can you explain what the military was doing there and live on air, you know, she was shouting at me, saying, you are part of the propaganda and the BBC is doing a very bad job. And, you know, she went on and on in criticizing me and never, of, of course, never answering my question. So you can imagine the political line that they followed with whoever is reporting what they don't want to be reported. Yeah, wow. And that was during a, a live press conference. That's crazy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, how does, uh, I mean, obviously it's a huge change to leave Syria and never go back. How do you manage to report on it in all the years since then, being based out of Beirut? Well, so I managed to go back uh, on several occasions to visit, you know, my town, to see friends and family members and do a little bit of sometimes, you know, using my iPhone, recording on my iPhone and doing a couple of radio documentaries from inside Syria, the last of which was a failed revolution. I think I did that in 2016, talking about the failed hope of the revolutionaries at the time. I did a lot of like also online pieces. I reported for Chatham House, you know, reporting from inside Syria. I did some pieces. When you have access, when you see things for your own eyes, it's different than when you are abroad, no matter how much you talk to people and try to get the reality. 
But that's what I did when I wasn't able to go back, you know. So, um, A, there are lots of refugees here in Lebanon or elsewhere. I did like a radio program, both for Arabic and English. For English, I did fewer episodes, but for Arabic, I did 52 episodes of radio program called The Syrian Cafe, where I hosted Syrians everywhere in diaspora, inside Syria, rebels, civilians, doctors, artists, you know, writers, basically covering all aspects. And that also got me to travel to many countries around the world, like whether in the region, Jordan, Egypt, you know, in Berlin, in London, in France. You know, I tried to follow the traces of Syrians wherever they went. And those who were in the States, I managed also to get them down the line and interview them. So there are several ways for people to continue covering the stories. And of course, you know, I've covered the peace talks in Geneva and I went there on several reporting occasions covering the peace talks. So, yeah, you continue. There are many ways to tell the story now that, you know, almost six million Syrian refugee, are refugees or are in diaspora and you can still have access to people inside Syria. And I think being a Syrian, it gives me the privilege of having the access. I know people in person. I'm able to talk to them. I'm able to connect to them. And people have more confidence because they know you. So yeah, we can connect you with this person and connect you with that person. But I also think that Syrians have learned how to communicate better because of the war. They want their story to be told. They communicate with journalists regardless of their nationality or their language. And there are great citizen journalists on the ground or even in diaspora who have developed great skills in also reporting themselves on their own country. Before we talk about some stories, I just wanted to ask what you thought about how things were now in Syria. I know if you Google it, they say the war is still ongoing. There are still, you know, small areas held by rebels, but it seems like that it is kind of played out and, you know, Bashar al-Assad's regime will stay in place. And the story, I mean, is getting upstaged by Ukraine and all these sorts of things. I was just wondering if uh, you had any thoughts on how, where things stand today on the story. People would be surprised if they hear that today is the worst time that the Syrians are facing, Syrians inside are facing ever. There was an international interest and focus on Syria when the bombs were falling, when ISIS was there. ISIS was a threat not only for Syria, but it was a transnational threat. So there was international interest, NGOs interest, UN interest. But now after you know all that stopped, the bombing have reduced, especially bombing on government-controlled areas. The war in Ukraine took all the attention and there is a Syria fatigue, you know, whether on money draining, uh, international efforts draining and media focus shifted completely. But Syrians now are left to face the worst economic crisis ever. Poverty is over 90 percent of the population are living below poverty line. I recently reported on UN statements saying they described hunger is now a characteristic of Syria. People are digging in garbage to find food. And we're talking about people who were middle class. We're not talking about, about people who were poor. Inside Syria, there are 9 million internally displaced 
who don't have homes to live in because their homes were destroyed by the war and no one is going to help rebuild their homes. Poverty is beyond imagination in, in Syria today. If you go around in Syria today, you would find more women than men because all the men are fleeing. They don't want to be subscribed to the army. Uh, there are no work for them. In young population or are finding whenever there is an opportunity, they'll just leave. Dubai opened their visa for a while and the lines, the queues that you see on the passport control are enormous of young people trying to leave, even going to work at the basic. But anything is better than being in Syria. There is no power, no electricity, no fuel for cars, no heating for the winter. It's just a disaster. And after all this comes the earthquake. So imagine where we are today. Yeah, wow. Where do things stand for you then now? I mean, is it always going to be difficult to go back to Syria outside of some select instances, given the government? Well, unfortunately, two years ago, I've discovered that I am back on the wanted list. And since then, I haven't been able to sort this out. And I haven't been able to go back to Syria. And um, I continue following the story. You know, I still have relatives there. I have close friends there. I have so much contact there. So I continue knowing what's happening, reporting on the story. We recently had some material filmed in Aleppo after the earthquake that I've reported on for radio and for television, even from a distance. So there are always ways of reporting on the story. But honestly, to be honest, as much as I had like strong connection to my own country, Every time I've been back, I felt that I'm disconnected more and more and that the city I grew up in is not the same at all. I felt disconnected. I felt distant. I felt as a stranger in my own town. I think there is something that hits every Syrian, whether living inside or outside, that we are emotionally distorted because of the massive traumas we've lived through, the loss, the pain, the death. And the worst thing is the sense of helplessness and injustice that things are not going to change, that the ones responsible for the destruction of the city, for the displacement of people, for the death of people are still in power and are not subject for justice, that the world had turned a blind eye to what's happening in Syria, that, you know, the democracy is just a political game. You know, there is this sense of disappointment, big disappointment in the world and in human rights ethics that, you know, when it comes to Syria, are completely forgotten, that we feel there is no light at the end of the tunnel. And that really puts you into paralysis. Wow. I can tell this is not going to be a podcast that's going to bring any, any I don't know, it's just not the uplifting kind of uh, podcast, I think. But that, that's fine. I mean, it's one of the, you know, most important stories of the new millennium. So it's important to talk about it and highlight it. I did want to ask a little bit about, you know, the personal toll. I don't want to shy away from that. As you said, many people had it worse than you and your family. But, you know, still there was a heavy toll. And you said, you know, you've dealt with PTSD, which I know is a problem for a lot of journalists who report on conflicts. I don't even know if I have a question. I, I just want to ask if there's anything you, you want to say about that uh, personal toll or let other journalists know about it. 
I really salute all journalists who have the power and the courage to talk about this. I haven't talked about it before, and I think it's important to talk about it. I still don't know if I can talk about it fully, but I keep going into phases of like severe depression and sense of helplessness, you know, sense of losing faith in life, losing the interest in doing anything or what's the point of doing anything or, you know, and, and, and with the situation in Syria and, and, you know, with the latest death toll in Syria, you reach a point where you feel, what's the point of living in this miserable life? But of course, the next morning comes and you wake up and you go back into your own rituals and you push yourself to live and enjoy life and try to think of the positive side of things. But I have to say it's 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 really difficult. I mean, it's been 10 years and I don't think I'm still over it. I even, you know, there were points where I had, you know, suicidal thoughts and the only thing that backed me off was... I didn't want to bring pain to my mother by my own loss. I don't know. It's 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 very hard. Of course, you know the BBC helped with some sessions with you know psychotherapy, but I don't think it's uh, talking about it is good. But I don't think you ever heal. I mean, you you get techniques and ways of dealing with it so that you move on. But the problem is the story is still the same. The situation is still the same. It's not that there is justice at the end. It's not that, you know, there is joy or that, you know, the people who've lost their lives, those who killed them were held accountable. Nothing of that is happening in Syria. It's misery upon misery upon misery. And no matter how safe I am or my family is, but everything around me is just miserable and uh, it's hard to switch off. You are affected, you are hurt, you feel the pain of other people. And uh, there is this sense of guilt, why I'm still alive, why I'm fine, why I can eat, why do I have a roof over my head while millions others don't have? And I know that this narrative doesn't help, but it does exist. And that's the problem. It does exist. It's there every day in and out. And every day you struggle again and say, I have to stand up. I have to continue. I have to defend myself. I have to keep going. I have to keep working. I have to feed myself. I have to, you know, we went through a lot of loss on material level which means that I have to work to pay my bills. So I cannot even afford the depression. So I have to keep fighting for myself. But in comparison with the collective loss around, my loss is nothing. Yeah, I can't even imagine. But uh, yeah, thanks for talking about it and, and being open about it. And yeah, I, I understand that it's usually always something that's going to be there. It's just something you learn how to deal with. So th thanks for sharing. Otherwise, I was going to ask about some stories. Is there anything else you would like to talk about before we move on to that? No, I think let's try to talk about something positive, maybe. Sure, sure. So next I'll ask about some stories. Uh, first, yeah, if there's a story you're proud of that you could tell us about and tell us a little bit about how you did this story, the, the story behind the story. Well, 
Well, to be honest, I think always the great thing about journalism is that it gets you in touch with people face to face. You know, you, they allow you in to their personal life. They get you into their homes, intimate details about their, you know, their life. And, and I find this incredible. And throughout my career, I think I was always amazed by the strength of women that I've met, especially in times of crises, you know, in, in Syria, in Yemen, wherever you go here in refugee camps, the women work in the fields and they, they work as gardeners, as farmers, and they come back to their kids at home. But, you know, even in their tiny tents, they'll still say, they welcome you. They say, just come in, please. With their basics, they, they're barely able to eat. They'll still have they have to offer you a cup of tea. You know, whatever they have, they'll just like put on the plate for you. They are grateful for coming in and telling their story. And, and I find them incredible in adjusting, in adapting, in how I, I look at women in my own country, how they were like sidelined by men and now how they are into politics. They are uh, on political boards. They are on educational boards. We've seen even in the earthquake recently with the white helmet, the incredible volunteers of civil defense, there were women and men in the rescue team. And that's really, for me, is very uplifting. It's, it's incredible to see how people are resilient, how people continue, how people want to help each other. And this is something that I keep with me that makes me feel that we have a duty to continue. We have a duty to continue telling their stories and raising their voices and showing the world how these incredible people on the ground, the poorest of the poor, sometimes come up with the most resilient and strong stories of what they go through and how they stand up and continue. And has that shown up in your reporting? Is there any specific stories or have you been able to do any documentaries or anything about specifically women in the conflict? I did the documentary which I pre produced and, and directed in 2013. It's called Suriyat, and that reported on five different women during the time of the revolution, even women from the regime's side, including a nurse, an activist, a filmmaker, and a, a reporter from the regime's side, just to talk about their daily life. But even after that, I've done, you know, many reporting in different areas about women and their work, uh, even how the whole Syria revolution was a woman ignited one, you know, how the teacher at the school, you know, influenced those children in Dera and how women organized the protests, two women organized the protesters, and they created what's called, at the time, the coordination committees. They were both run by two amazing Syrian women. The stories were endless that I did about women, but also brave women and, and men. I did, you know, a film about, you know, uh, doctors and nurses and civilians in Aleppo during the siege. I'm currently working on a new documentary film about uh, the resilient people who decided to stay in government-controlled Damascus. And I continue reporting about women working on defending the disappeared uh, in Syria or tracing them. The stories are endless, but I also did the same also in Yemen interviewing Tawakkul Karaman at the time when she got the Nobel Prize. 
and reporting on other great uh, women in Yemen. I remember even in Saudi Arabia, when I was uh, reporting there, I interviewed great women. One was, uh, you know, a presenter at NBC Channel. And that was even before the opening up that Saudi Arabia is uh, witnessing now. So those stories stay in mind all the time. But the, the most powerful ones comes from refugee camps where women are living the hardest conditions, but also working hard to raise their kids and protect them and feed them. Yeah, that's a lot. Out of, out of all those, uh, just since I'm a bit more familiar with it, I, I was curious about how you had done the documentary. Uh, I believe it's called Madness in Aleppo. That's the one about doctors working during the war. Uh, how did you go about doing that documentary? I was curious. Well, this is basically also an example of many of us, how we operated during the time of the war where there were restrictions on movement or getting access to Syria. So I had to rely on a local cameraman who was living actually in the hospital and who was filming. And when he left uh, Syria, I managed to see him and collect all the, the footage that I had directed him to film during his time in, in Aleppo. But then to be able to tell the story and make it into a film, I had to interview all the characters and film them when they left Syria in their respective country, including the cameraman himself who sought refuge in the UK. So that's when I met them there and I interviewed them and I had asked them about the moments that they've lived inside Aleppo. This is the only way I was able to turn this into a film and to turn their story into a documentary film so that I can, you know, have a, a narrational arc for the film. And I imagine it must, as you say, the cameraman's already left Syria. It must get more and more difficult to find people still in the country who are able to do this work. Is that right? Well, in fact, no, because there are generations of new cameramen, new uh, great talents that are emerging, whether on the government side or the opposition side. So there are always ways to operate, you know, inside Syria. Of course, many of my colleagues, foreign colleagues, are able to cross into opposition-held areas. I cannot do this because that means it will deny my access forever to government-controlled areas where my home is, where the rest of my family is, because the regime, you know, wouldn't accept that you would cross the border illegally. Although I still can't go to my own part of Syria because of regime threats, but I'm still hoping that one day I would be able to go back. Yeah, I hope you can go back one day. Next up is the lightning round. Do you feel ready? Yeah, I hope so. Um, I'm frightened about this section, but yeah, let's see. <laughs> First, I wanted to ask about a publication that covers the region you cover that people might not have heard of that you might want to shout out as doing a good job um, and worth checking out. So for somebody who's interested in Syria, maybe it's worth looking at. And it, it doesn't have to be in English. Uh, is there any particular publication uh, you want to shout out? In the Arab world, there is lack of freedom of expression. So all the media outlets are either government-controlled one or political parties-controlled one. So um, it's hard to find like a really balanced one. But there are 
great initiatives coming up of independent media with great journalism coming up, popping up to, in the region. And I will name a few to follow. And most of them, they have some of their prominent articles translated into English. The first one I will start with is aljumhuria.net. Aljumhuria.net is a Syrian website of intellect and art and culture, but also of politics that goes into depth about the situation in Syria and the Arab world. And they have great young Syrian writers and journalists and young Arab writers and journalists contributing, as well as intellectual Syrians. So you have all qualities involved. There's also Aina Beledi, a Syria website that also writes in English, mainly focused about reporting on the ground in Syria and mainly focused on news, but it's a great source as well. There is Rasif 22. Rasif 22 is a website that was established, I think, 10 or 12 years ago as the Arab Spring kicked off. And it's called Rasif 22 because it's 22 Arab countries and they have amazing, uh, amazing writers and journalists from the Arab world feeding into this website. And they have some video work as well. Some of their work is also translated into English. Recently, there is also uh, Daraj Media that started in Lebanon, which also covers the whole Arab world. You have Heber in uh, Jordan. You have Mada Masr, Mada in, in Egypt, and they're all like great, you know, young and professional journalists and old professional journalists. So it's a combination of all. But what's great about them is that it's people on the ground from their own countries reporting on their own country. And on that level, I have like great optimism in this independent media that is, you know, mushrooming in the Arab world. Great. Those are all perfect. And yeah, if they have some in English, even better, because then I can go check them out. The next question is if there is a publication you read, listen to, or watch, it can be any medium, more for fun, that's not related to what you cover on your job, but vaguely journalistic in nature. I'm not sure. I love New Yorker. I love their style, and I love the way they report on stories. New York Times Magazine as well. I enjoy reading more about art and books and culture because you know, the news gives you a lot of fatigue and, and pessimism. So it's good to go into something more uplifting. There is a new also independent, sort of independent my online magazine that started. Uh, it's called the New Lines magazine. And it really gives more room to write in details about stories in more artistic style. And, you know, also they have people, experts on the ground in different parts of the world uh, reporting differently on what's happening. I, I did a piece for them talking about poetry cafe in Syria, but throughout the poetry cafe and the poetry society, you talk about the whole political life in Syria. That's something I really enjoy reading in that magazine, too. Those are good. And then a little bit more specifically What's the best journalistic article piece can be TV, audio, text that you've consumed recently and recently can be whenever a piece that's kind of stuck with you? I was a, a judge in One World Media uh, Awards last year and there were like great pieces that were part of the work from Ethiopia about the drought there from Sudan, Darfur, incredible work of journalism, but also 
you know, there's one piece that was recently published in collaboration with between The Guardian and two academics who worked relentlessly for years tracing massacres that happened in Tadamon in one area of Syria and how one Assad officer was responsible for the killing and torture of dozens of people. It comes to my mind how, you know, they worked for you know, months and months trying to trace where he is, who he is, and who has done that. And I think that kind of work is really incredible because hopefully it will bring justice to those who lost one day. You know, we've seen um, after Bosnia and Herzeg, Bosnia and Herzeg, years after how there was some justice that was brought, and we all hope in Syria that one day perpetrators of the mass killing will bring them to justice. This kind of work, this kind of journalism, this kind of documentation and tracing will one day, maybe not in our generation, but for the generation to come, to have this peace of mind when justice comes. Yeah, and I'll look for a link to that and to the other stories that you've done yourself and, and put those in the podcast description for people who want to check it out after the podcast. The next question, is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't related to your job? With COVID, we've all tried to look into what else can we do? You know, we are all in lockdown. And I think I've also developed something during COVID that I've become the crazy cat woman of the neighborhood. So uh, <laughs> I've, rescued, I've rescued five cats who are, you know, sitting around me now. And I keep going in rescuing more and more and feeding stray cats in the streets and, you know, treating them and helping them. And I think this is something good, but it's becoming obsessive at some point, but I enjoy it. Yeah, no, I have a cat. I love cats. And your cats have been very well behaved. I haven't heard them at all on the recording. Yeah, simply because they're sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. And then the next one is a question I don't ask every person, but um, I'm curious what you might have to say about it, is what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I often ask myself this question, and I always think that the thing that I want to tell my younger self is not to be afraid, is to keep fear out of my life. But then I think about the place I grew up in and the circumstances that surrounded me in my life, whether in a patriarchal society or in a tyranny that I grew up in. And I wonder whether there was a chance for me to escape fear. And I also think maybe that fear was the one that pushed me to where I am today because the fear of the oppressor made me want to tell the story of those who are oppressed. The fear of the patriarchal society made me rebel against it. And watching people break their silence around me made me also break many fears that I had. So I guess we are who we are because of what we lived and what we've been through, no? Yeah, yeah, it's hard to say you'd really change something if, you know, it would completely change your entire story um, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. And then what is a moment that you thought, you know, I can't believe this is my life uh, that your job took you into? So the weirdest, most surreal, 
I don't know, coolest situation. I like to call it a pinch me. I can't believe this is my life sort of moment if uh, anything sticks out to you. I think I really enjoyed, I've always you know, been grateful for going out and meeting people and learning about their lives and you know reporting on them, whether in Syria going to places that I've newly discovered or in Yemen, learning about a new society, a new community. And I think I remember one moment in Yemen. I was out of Syria after being imprisoned and threatened, and I came to Yemen, and I was reporting on the revolution, you know, the protest against Ali Abdullah Saleh. And at some point, I even interviewed Ali Abdullah Saleh himself before he got, you know, assassinated. So I was sitting with the, some of the opposition, and I was whispering to them, you know, thinking that, you know, there might be some security around in the hotel lobby or, you know, listening to us. And I didn't want to put them in danger because this is the background I come from. You know, this is how you operate in Syria. Everything, you treat everything carefully. You whisper, you look around you, you make sure that nobody is watching you. But actually, you know, in Yemen, it was really funny because... You know, you would talk to the opposition and in the evening you would go to a cut uh, chewing uh, session and the opposition people would be sitting with the government people and chit-chatting together and saying, no, you did this wrong and did, did this um, right. And, you know, uh, joyfully doing things. That's, of course, how it started before the assassination, before the Houthis were involved, before the Iranians uh, got involved. And it was just an amazing experience for me to see how people were on different political lines, but, you know, on human lines were so much close together and they were not afraid of speaking out their minds like we do in Syria. Yeah, that's a nice memory. Um, And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I love cooking. I would love to be a chef. I'd love to have like a bar where I can serve people food and have people enjoying their time and chit-chatting around them. I often think of a of a retirement project with like having a little restaurant by a beach somewhere where you have people gathering around and enjoying their time. Yeah, but this is just an idea. I think I'll get tired of cooking. <laughs> Still, it's a nice idea and a nice note to end on. So that's all the questions. So I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Lena. Thank you very much for having me. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lena Sinjab, a BBC correspondent based in Beirut. I'll post links to some of the things Lena talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode in a month or so. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.